Experts claim there is nothing tougher than a diamond. But at Diamonds Direct, we beg to differ. Have you ever met a mother? Strong, radiant, timeless. This Mother's Day, give her the gift that meets her match. With diamond jewelry starting at $200, plus Diamonds Direct's exceptional quality and unbeatable everyday price, you're sure to give her a gift that wows this generation and the next to come. Experience the thrill of jewelry shopping done right at Diamonds Direct. Diamonds Direct. Your love, our passion. Hey, girlfriends. It's me, Carol Fisher, back with another season of the global number one podcast, The Girlfriends. Last time, we investigated the murder of Gail Katz. This time, we're uncovering the identity of the woman who was buried in Gail's grave for a decade before she disappeared. Join me and the rest of the club as we tell her story. Listen to season two of The Girlfriends, Our Lost Sister on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Tamika D. Mallory. And it's your boy, my son, the general. And we are your hosts of TMI. And catch us every Wednesday on the Black Effect Network, breaking down social and civil rights issues, pop culture, and politics in hopes of pushing our culture forward to make the world a better place for generations to come. Listen to TMI on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. That's right. Today, it's great to have Colin DeYoung on the podcast. Dr. DeYoung is a professor in the psychology department at the University of Minnesota and the director of the Personality, Individual Differences, and Behavioral Genetics program. He researches the structure and sources of psychological traits using neuroscience methods to investigate their biological substrates. He developed a general theory of personality, cybernetic big five theory, which identifies psychological functions associated with major personality traits, as well as their connection to other elements of personality and various life outcomes, including mental illness. Colin, it's so good to chat with you again on the Psychology Podcast. It's great to see you, Scott. You are, uh, you may take the cake as top, no, you do take the cake as top five of my closest friends and collaborators who have appeared on the podcast. Right on. So, so there you go. <laughs> That's, it's an honor. Yeah, well, it's a real honor for me. I, uh, uh, it's, it's been a nice, uh, a nice journey of getting to know you and all the topics that we debate and discuss. And it's really, you've really enriched my life. <laughs> Just want you to know that. Oh, it's been a- it's been a while now, right? What is it? Yeah. Um, it's like Over a 15 decade. years almost that we've yeah. known each other. Almost. Yeah, a, dec- a decade and a yeah. half almost. It's it's uh, amazing. And I, I feel like while we've both uh, grown, there's still this like little child that comes out when we get together. <laughs> 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 like the playful, you know, that, that, that part of us I think is still there. I hope so. Yeah, I hope so too. Um, but let's well, – let's, let's, what, what were you going to say? I was just going to say, we'll see how silly the uh, podcast gets. Well, it, uh, yeah, it's, now we don't need to put pressure on ourselves to be silly. But um, I know, we I wanna, should talk about all kinds of serious things. Yes. Well, I, your new theory. <laughs> well, your new theory of psychopathology is pretty serious. I think so. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's uh, it's hard to make too many jokes about that theory. Uh, so what is mental illness? Like, first of all. Shouldn't we, as a field of psychologists and psychiatrists, actually have a definition? 
Yeah, that's a funny thing, isn't it? Uh, you'd think that we would know how to define the thing we're studying, but well, I mean, you've done research in intelligence. Look how hard it is for people to agree on a definition of intelligence, for example. Um, but yeah, mental illness. I think that one of the reasons that there isn't as much focus as there might be on defining mental illness per se is that people usually think of it as a collection of more specific illnesses mm -hmm. and specific disorders. And so they tend to look for definitions of schizophrenia or definitions of borderline personality disorder or definitions of PTSD, right? So the focus is often at the level of an individual disorder rather than stepping back and looking at the big picture and saying, well, what is mental illness in general? Mm. Yeah. And also just when it comes to like psychological theories, uh, of mental illness impacting the psychiatry, the psychiatry field. Um, when I was looking into the literature and reading your paper, it surprised me just the dearth of the extent to which psychiatry has adopted any of these psychological theories. Yeah, well, there's a lot that we could say about that just in terms of like the history of psychiatry and clinical psychology. Um, I mean, there have been times in the past where people have thought more actively about what mental illness is in a general way. Like you can go back to the anti-psychiatry movement from like the 50s and 60s, uh, you know, people like Thomas Saz and R.D. Lang. And, you know, that's like the one polar extreme of thinking about definitions of mental illness, which is that they are just purely social constructions, right? That there is no uh, thing in nature that's a mental disorder. It's all about the way in which society wants people to be certain ways, doesn't want them to be other ways, and then defines people who aren't uh, the way that they want them to be as mentally ill. Um, I, I mean, I think that, you know, going to both extremes is problematic. Like, I don't think that's the right way to think about uh, mental illness either. But, you know, that at, at some point, that was a big topic of conversation. Like, is mental illness something that's not just socially constructed? We can, we can think about it kind of systematically as one pole is just that it's purely socially constructed. The other pole is that it is purely naturalistic, right? Like that there is something scientifically identifiable that is mental illness and it has nothing to do with societal norms or societal right. traditions or beliefs or anything like that. And, uh, and then in the middle, you have what are probably the more popular positions today when people do think about this, which are described as hybrid positions, mm. where the idea is that there is something really going on, you know, there is some kind of dysfunction that we can point to from a naturalistic perspective, but then that there's also some degree of societal judgment about, uh, you know, like who is severely ill enough to get diagnosed. Um, I'll give you an example that's an analogy to something that's really trivial in, I mean, it's not exactly trivial, it's a serious problem for people, but just in physical medicine, which would be blood pressure, mm -hmm. right? So, you know, we all know that having high blood pressure is a risk for various cardiovascular problems, but where we say the line is where you have hypertension, right? You, where you get a diagnosis from your doctor, that is a somewhat arbitrary line. 
blood pressure is a continuum. You can have low blood pressure, you can have high blood pressure, it's on a spectrum. And the medical establishment has picked a certain point at which they say, like, if you're above that, now you have hypertension. Right. If you're below that, you don't, right? So, you know, it's not, and they acknowledge that there is a certain degree of trying to pick a, a reasonable threshold that is, you know, good for people's health. Nobody thinks that having a blood pressure of, you know, 159 is qualitatively different from having a blood pressure of 161. So you can see that there's this element, like there's a real thing going on there. There's differences in blood pressure associated with differences in risk. And then there is also a bit of social construction, which is to say, well, what's the level we're going to pick where we're going to give people a diagnosis? We're going to start giving them drugs. We're going to start treating them. You know, we're going to intervene. Um, and all those same kinds of questions come up in um, in issues surrounding mental illness. Yeah, as well as uh, issues of gifted education. <laughs> like right. I, 130 IQ, you're you're gifted. 129.5 IQ. <laughs> yeah, sorry. <laughs> you're un, you're actually ungifted yeah. because there's right. only two only two categories we have. Right. Yeah, yeah. Um so look, uh when we apply this to mental illness, we can see just how messy all this stuff gets. And uh, and what I like about your theory, I like a, I really do like a number of things about your theory. It's not just because I'm friends with you. Uh, <laughs> I'm glad. Yeah. Um, I was wondering if you could tell people um, about uh, the theory, how your theory, how you define mental illness, because you have a very specific definition that brings in cybernetic theory, and then we'll unpack what cybernetic theory is. Yeah, okay. Um, and I think probably as I start to get into it, it would, it would be helpful to say a little bit about how our theory fits in with these general types of theory that I've just been describing. That would be great. That would um, be great. And also maybe to say a little bit about what's been happening in the world of science around psychopathology and mental illness um, in the last, you know, like 20 years or so. Um, I think the most important thing to understand is that it's pretty widely acknowledged at this point that the traditional diagnostic system that comes out of like the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual from the American Psychiatric Association, that's the DSM, um, that that system is not scientifically accurate. Um, the Probably the biggest problem with it is that it treats mental illness as if it was a categorically distinct phenomenon. So uh, some people have schizophrenia and some people don't. Some people have borderline personality disorder and some people don't. Um, and so it's treated as if there's this kind of clear dividing line. Uh, whereas if you look at the actual data more closely, what you see is something a lot more like blood pressure. People have various kinds of symptoms that cause them problems. They have various kinds of uh, you know unusual characteristics that can cause problems for them, can cause dysfunction, can cause impairment, can cause suffering. Um, and there is no perfectly clear dividing line to say when those get severe enough that they actually count as a mental disorder or not, because it's on a, it's on a smooth spectrum, right? The, the uh, pattern of these qualities that people have that we identify as symptoms of mental illness are actually just kind of distributed in the whole population, and there's no clean separation of people who have the disease from people who don't, right? It's not like it's not like a flu. It's not like COVID where you either have the virus and it's infecting you or you don't, right? It's much more like blood pressure where you have a certain level of it and it gets to a certain level. It starts to cause you other problems in your life. And so we decide like we need to intervene in some way. But there's this persistent fiction 
uh, in psychiatry especially, that these are somehow categorically distinct entities. Um, so one of the things that's been happening in, uh, in research on mental illness is that people are trying to look at it more in terms of a spectrum or a lot of different spectra, right? Because it's not just one spectrum. You know, we already see that in some areas of uh, studying mental illness. Like we talk about the autism spectrum and people increasingly now talk about the schizophrenia spectrum. Um, but really, every common mental disorder is on spectrum. a spectrum. Right. And so that's one problem with the current system uh, is this use of categories instead of dimensions. Now, the other serious problem is that the way the categories are organized are not accurate in terms of describing how people's symptoms tend to go together. Um, and so what that means is that you end up with situations uh, like within depression, people can have extremely different sets of symptoms and still get the same diagnostic label, for example. Like you can have uh, weight loss or you can have weight gain, and that could be a symptom of depression. You can have uh, insomnia or hypersomnia, where you sleep all the time, and both of those things can be a symptom of depression. So it's also increasingly recognized that the current diagnostic categories don't do a very good job of actually identifying uh, groups of people who have a, a, a similar problem that would help us to figure out how to treat them and how to help them. Because right? that's ultimately the whole purpose of diagnostic systems is to try to help people right? to figure out uh, what is wrong with them as accurately as we can so that we can figure out as best we can how to help them. Um, and the current system isn't really doing that. So uh, one of the things that I'm uh, a part of is uh, this movement to try to create a new diagnostic system that would be based on dimensions instead of on categories. So I'm part of this group that's called the uh, Consortium for the Hierarchical Taxonomy of Psychopathology. And that last part gets abbreviated as HITOP. Mm -hmm. um, so what HITOP is trying to do is basically use actual empirical data about patterns of symptoms that appear in people and which ones appear together to describe uh, the range of different symptoms of uh, mental disorders that there are and to group them together in ways that are actually based on real empirical data as opposed to just, uh, you know, uh, tradition and sort of medical intuition and uh, expert opinion from doctors over 100 years. Um, so uh, then you also have in the world of scientific research on mental health, uh, the NIMH, which is the National Institute on Mental Health, and they do a lot of the funding of research for you know, is trying to figure out the causes of mental disorder. And uh, about 10 years ago or so, they also uh, came to the conclusion that they needed to reject the categorical system that appears in DSM. And what they decided to do instead was to focus on specific, what they call um, biobehavioral systems, right? So trying to understand the underlying brain processes and the patterns of behavior and cognition and emotion that go along with those um, and to understand them again as a dimension just like blood pressure where you know you you might have a problem with your uh, reward system or what they call your positive valence system and if that's hyperactive it could be associated with mania for example right so instead of saying well here's this thing uh, bipolar disorder right and it it's it's got to have all these features uh, instead, what they say is, no, let's focus in on specific dimensions of symptoms like mania. What are the system? What are the psychological processes and brain systems that underlie it? 
let's see if we can make progress on understanding mental illness that way. So you've got people from the clinical side working on, uh, on this high top project to uh, classify and describe mental illness in a dimensional way. You've got people on the scientific and biological side trying to describe it in this dimensional way. Um, and so our theory is basically trying to come in and say, um, it's great that we have all this progress toward uh, these dimensional approaches that are more in keeping with what we actually know scientifically about mental illness. Um, but still not enough people are thinking about this more general question of what mental illness is. Because once you've got a dimensional system, you still have to say, okay, what's the threshold? Where do you decide when somebody is mentally ill and what does that mean? Right. And so, um, I'll, what, what I'll do is I will, uh, I'll read you our definition of mental illness uh, and then I'll unpack it. So what we say is that uh, psychopathology is persistent failure to move toward one's goals due to failure to generate effective new goals, interpretations, or strategies when existing ones prove unsuccessful. Okay, so there's a lot to unpack there, obviously. Now, um, and so, you know, the way to understand this is in the, in the context of this idea of, uh, of cybernetics, which people now you hear that word, you think like cyberspace, cybersecurity, yeah. you think artificial computers. intelligence, yeah. artificial intelligence. Absolutely. You tend to think about things that are done with computers, yeah. but cybernetics is actually a, a discipline that is broader than just artificial intelligence. It also includes uh, natural intelligence and it includes the way in which organisms function as well as the way in which uh, computers function. And it dates back to um, a, a scientist named Norbert Wiener in the late 1940s who had this idea, he had this insight, which is that he's operating in the context of the first art, like artificial control systems. Mm -hmm. uh, like for example, in World War II, you might design an, an anti-aircraft gun that is able to actually track a plane as it's coming in automatically to aim, right, in order to, to track the, the trajectory of the plane and to, sh and to shoot at it accurately. Uh, and then you can get things like missile guidance systems. Um, pretty soon you're going to get things like uh, chess computers. So in the, in the middle of the 20th century, you've got all of these artificial control systems being developed in different ways, like the first computers, um, various things for, you know, uh, weaponry, etc. And... Uh, what Wiener recognizes is basically that there have to be principles that are common to any kind of system that is able to pursue a goal based on feedback uh, from what's happening and from what it's tracking in the environment, right? So uh, like a missile guidance system has to take feedback in order to correct it, the course of the missile. Uh, a chess computer has to register what's happening in the game that it's playing in order to try to win the game. And any organism has to pursue sources of uh, nutrition and uh, reproduction in order to be able to, to survive and reproduce, right? In order to have fitness from an evolutionary perspective. So what cybernetics is basically is that it is the study of the principles that govern uh, goal-directed systems that self-regulate via feedback, right? so that are able basically to uh, process input about the state of the world, to compare it to some particular 
uh, value that or goal that is represented within the, the system itself, and then to act in various ways to enact a set of uh, operators, you know, behaviors or cognitive operations or whatever they are, um, to try to move toward their goals. And in psychology, we often think of goals as things like where you have a very concrete idea of the future that you're committed to working toward. But in cybernetics, a goal is something uh, more abstract. Basically, it is any representation within the system of a state that the system then works to bring about in the world. So uh, plants are cybernetic systems. They, they carry out processes, you know, to sure. acquire nutrients and moisture and to grow in various ways. And so that's the basic insight, right, is that there have to be a set of principles that are responsible for governing any kind of cybernetic system, um, whether it's, uh, you know, a, a robot trying to accomplish something or a human trying to accomplish something or a, a plant or a chess computer or whatever it is. And so there, you know, that turned into a whole very successful field, and it was more widely applied in, uh, you know, in engineering. And all of our computer technology, basically, or much of it, uh, is influenced by that field. Um, but to uh, an important extent, it was also influential in psychology. Sure. And so, um, so. When I was on your podcast once before, we talked a lot about my theory of personality in general, uh, which is a cybernetic theory. It's called cybernetic big five theory. <clears throat> and it's about the way in which personality traits, these kinds of broad personality traits like the big five that we study, represent variation in these general cybernetic mechanisms that allow us to pursue our goals and our needs effectively. Like we have to be able to be motivated by goals, things that are going to reward us. Um, we have to be able to, uh, you know, carry out actions that move us toward them and to avoid distractions from those, from those actions. And we have to be able to uh, compare where we are with where we want to be or how we think things ought to be. And so we have a set of mechanisms in the brain that enables us to do all those things. Now, the connection between the personality theory and the theory of psychopathology is basically that uh, the, those same mechanisms that allow us to pursue our goals can break down in various ways. And most common forms of mental illness, we can trace back to specific ways in which those you know, human functions that allow us to pursue our goals and our needs effectively uh, tend to... Uh, tend to break down. Um, and sometimes they break down because they are relatively extreme, like somebody has a, what we could describe as a relatively unusual or extreme level of some personality trait, and it causes problems for them in their lives, and that might lead to dysfunction. But I think the important thing about the way in which we're defining psychopathology is that it hinges on this idea of cybernetic dysfunction. Right. So what we're saying is basically, no matter how unusual you are, no matter how uh, how weird your personality profile is, uh, you do not have a mental disorder oh, unless that's about me. that we're... Okay. Yeah, well, I mean, we could talk about your weirdness too if we want to. <laughs> I, I was like, you better but, not be singling me out, bro. Uh, okay. well, I, I, we can do that later. <laughs> okay. okay, go on. That's, that's for the psychoanalysis part of the, of the podcast. Of the podcast, yeah. <laughs> I don't want you psychoanalyzing yeah. me. All right, I won't. Not on air, anyway. Um, anyway, so but the basic idea is that 
you don't have a mental disorder, you don't have psychopathology on our definition until whatever your unusual qualities are uh, cause you to be unable to meet your needs or to be able to pursue your goals in life effectively. Um, and so right. in some ways that is already present in uh, implicitly at least in right. the DSM because a lot of the diagnoses in the DSM uh, emphasize that you're not supposed to give the person a diagnosis unless they uh, meet the criteria for uh, what it's called um, impairment uh, or distress. Right. So what does that mean? Well, one of the things that it means is that you could have uh, all, all the symptoms, for example, or you know, you can have a set of symptoms that would qualify you for schizophrenia, let's say. Um, and at some point, I'll talk a bit about how, from the perspective of our theory, schizophrenia as a, as a categorical entity doesn't really exist. Um, and it's not just from the perspective of our theory either. As I was saying earlier, it's this new emerging perspective in, uh, in clinical psychology as a whole that recognizes that the data say that these categories, uh, the categories don't really exist as categories and the symptoms aren't really organized in the way that the DSM says they are. But just as shorthand for now, let's say you have uh, all the symptoms or a set of symptoms that would qualify you for schizophrenia, but you're not impaired. Like your life is going along just fine uh, and uh, you, know, you may have challenges once in a while, but you are able to overcome them and deal with them. And so in that case, and you're not particularly distressed either, in that case, you're not supposed to give somebody a diagnosis. Now, your first intuition when you, might, when you hear that might be to say, how would that even be possible, right? Schizophrenia, that's supposed to be such a severe disorder. That's, you know, there's, that's psychosis, right? It's characterized fundamentally by you have delusions or hallucinations or both, um, and plus a bunch of other qualities that you might have there that are likely to be impairing. So how could that not be impairing? Well, there's a, a great study that we talk about in uh, that paper study. that I sent you, uh, in which a, a group of uh, psychics was compared to a group of clairvoyance. people diagnosed. Uh, they like to be called clairvoyance. Yes. Clairvoyance. Uh, they were people who had uh, auditory, regular auditory hallucinations. That was what qualified them to be in the study. Uh, and they believed that those auditory hallucinations were uh, them communicating with other realms, you know, whether that's with spirits of the dead or other spiritual realms or whatever. Um, so from the standpoint of you know, medical diagnosis, if you take somebody who come, who presents with those symptoms, they that would classify as as, as psychosis, right? Because they have they have hallucinations, mm. they have auditory hallucinations, and they have delusions. Yes. Uh, but uh, the reason that you would not get a uh, diagnosis of you know schizophrenia, for example, or some other psychotic disorder with those for those people uh, is that you know, they're not impaired. Some of them are maybe working professionally as psychics um, or clairvoyants, um, or, you know, they could be, um, you know, maybe that's just like a, a, a side hobby of theirs, but whatever, it suggests that they are able to, uh, to pursue their lives effectively. They can make a living. They have uh, normal social relations. Um, you know, maybe some of their friends believe that they really do have these powers. Um, maybe they are, um, Maybe they are humoring them, who knows, whatever. But there is this crucial distinction that even the current system recognizes between uh, whether, you have, uh, some, whether you have dysfunction or not. Hey, Colin, I was wondering if you could tell me 
how your theory differs from uh, the class of theories that rely on statistical deviance. You know, the extent to which you're, you have a certain characteristic function that is way abnormal statistically. How does your theory differ from all those class of theories? So the, the issue, when we get to this general question of like, what is mental illness? Uh, one of the ways that people have dealt with that is basically just to say that uh, if you are far enough from the norm, then you have a problem, right? You're, you're abnormal, right? So there's, you know, one of, the, one of the scientific journals that I've published papers in is called the Journal of Abnormal Psychology. Um, and it's actually about to change its name to something else that doesn't use the word abnormal because the idea being that that word has become stigmatized. But it's important, I think, to think about what that word actually means because it means away from the norm, right? Ab means away from, and you know, it's, so it's basically saying that people have mental health problems who are weird, who are unusual, who are different from the norm. Um, and that is a pretty common way of approaching thinking about mental illness even if it's not the official definition, it is often implicitly the way that we approach people. Even the categories in the DSM are often that way, right? Because they'll say, uh, so if you have some, if you're having some kind of distress and you have five out of nine symptoms, for example, uh, then you have this particular mental disorder. So they're basically counting the number of symptoms you have. And once you get extreme enough, you know, once you get far away from the norm, because what's normal is for people to only have, you know, like zero symptoms or maybe one symptom of something, but they're not going to have like four or five or six or seven. And so the idea is that as you get up to have enough symptoms, then you're far enough away from the norm that we're going to say, okay, now you have a disorder. Um, and so our theory explicitly rejects that. And I was talking a little bit about this earlier because of the idea that just being unusual shouldn't be enough to say that you have a, a mental disorder or a, you know, a mental illness. Yeah. And um, it's often does, so the, the DSM often does require these additional components like uh, the presence of impairment or dysfunction. Um, but it's funny because in the, in the book itself, it says basically like that's just a, uh, that's just there because we don't have perfect diagnostic powers yet. You know, like once we know exactly what's going on in the brain that's making this person weird in this way, then we'll be able to say, okay, this person uh, has a mental disorder uh, without even asking whether they show impairment or distress. And to me, that's exactly backwards. Right? I think we should focus less on statistical deviance, whether you're unusual or not, whether you're extreme on some dimension, uh, and focus more on whether you are impaired in your ability to uh, pursue your goals in life. And by goals from a cybernetic perspective, as I was saying, we, are, we, we use that broadly to include things like your basic needs and uh, just whatever it is that people are uh, trying to, to get in life, even if they don't necessarily know it themselves. Right? Goals can be conscious or they can be unconscious. Well, that's, that's the, what confuses me and how you distinguish between competing goals, like if there's no priority there. Because you know, one could act a certain way that uh, is getting them towards, let's say, their meeting goals, but being catastrophic to their any other goals they have in their life. Right. That and that's, that? yeah, absolutely. That's super important. And, you know, so people often asked us about that in relation to theory, like, well, what if somebody is an alcoholic and they're doing a really good job of, you know, their goal of staying drunk all the time? Right. Well, right. So the point is that uh, from our perspective, it's not enough just to consider one goal. You have to consider 
you have to try to consider all of the person's goals and how they prioritize them and how they're doing with that. Um, and that would include, you know, basic needs that most people have, like a certain degree of connectedness to others and, um, you know, a sense of autonomy or whatever. And so, you know, the person who's a, who's being successful at staying drunk, right, who's an alcoholic, mm-hmm. um, they are probably undermining some of their other goals, like being able to earn a living effectively or maintaining good relationships with other people or even just maintaining their own health, for example. So what's really important is that you look at the whole collection of uh, what people are pursuing and what they value in their lives, and you look to see whether they are actually able to uh, to pursue those things effectively. Great, great. Um, something that's interesting about your theory is that you distinguish between mental disorder and psychopathology. Isn't that right? And I think yeah, this, that is right. this kind of relates to um, the kind of new way you're thinking about um, the brain's role is there's not like a particular brain pattern you can find in the brain and say that person's mentally ill just because right. their brain shows it. So can you elaborate right. a little bit? Sure. Yeah. I mean, and we think about that issue with, uh, with uh, brain disease. Like one of the things we've said is that mental illness is not brain disease. Mm-hmm. And, you know, that that doesn't mean we're dualists, right? We're not saying that there's some like, you know, the mind is separate from the brain. Obviously the brain is, you know, producing the mind. The brain is doing the things um, that the mind is. But what we mean is that merely having some particular unusual pattern of brain function does not in and of itself mean that you're mentally ill. It's just like having particular symptoms. Like we were talking about, uh, you know, you could be a clairvoyant and hear voices and, you know, believe you're communicating with spirits, and that doesn't make you mentally ill if your life is nonetheless uh, going well and functional, functioning uh, normally in other regards, right? Um, and so uh, the important thing is that um, whatever your brain is doing, it has to be causing you to not be able to pursue your goals effectively in life before we want to call it uh, psychopathology. In terms of this distinction that you were you brought up between psychopathology and a mental disorder, like so far in our conversation, I haven't been very careful about distinguishing between those two things. Um, and you know, many people in the field just use those interchangeably. Um, but we think it's important to that there could be a distinction between uh, something that is relatively naturalistic that we could, you know, from a scientific perspective, say, okay, this person is not only having trouble pursuing their goals but then they're also unable to adapt and to come up with new ways to live or new ways to interpret their situation uh, that would enable them to come up with new strategies for pursuing their goals or even to just develop new goals that would be better than the old goals, right? So one of the things about a cybernetic system is that it's not, we can't really say it's dysfunctioning just because it's temporarily off course because the whole point of cybernetic systems is that they can correct their course Right? They, they use feedback basically to when they're veering off course to get back on course. So they adapt. And so we all know that you're not going to say that somebody has a mental illness just because they have a bad day or even a bad week, right? Or things go really wrong for them or, you know, some project that's really important to them gets undermined in some way and they might be de- depressed for a little while. That's totally normal and totally healthy even. Um, when we start to be concerned about people and mental illness is when something like that happens and they can't figure out 
new goals or a new strategy to pursue their old goals or a new way of thinking about the world that would allow them to bounce back and get on course, right, and to start pursuing their needs and goals again effectively. So that's why that other there's that other part of our definition, which is that it's not just about uh, your ability to, uh, it's not just whether you are having trouble pursuing your goals, it's also then you are not able to develop new strategies or new goals or whatever that would allow you to get back on course. Um, And so, and we think that that's fundamentally something that is objectively true or not. Like a person has a set of goals. People aren't necessarily totally conscious of all aspects of their goals or their needs, um, but they're in there, right? They're represented in the brain. Um, And whether they are actually able to pursue those effectively or not, or to bounce back and get back on course when things go, uh, when things get challenging, uh, that is, uh, that's like a matter of fact, right? It's objectively true or not, whether that's, whether that's possible. Um, But then there's another level, which is that we have to figure out how secure does that have to get before we intervene, Right. And that's where we use the term mental disorder, because that's sort of the term that's typically used in psychiatry, like for a diagnosis, then you officially have a mental disorder. Um, So we kind of we recognize that there's still going to be some kind of discussion that's going to go on negotiations right between different players and in medicine and in politics or whatever that sets the threshold for when uh, somebody is said to have a problem that's severe enough that then we're going to spend resources to intervene. It's just like blood pressure, right? We know that the higher your blood pressure is, the more risk you have, but we pick a level at which we're going to intervene. And so basically we say psychopathology is just this fact that you're not able to pursue your goals effectively. um, Whereas mental disorder is, you know, whatever decisions get made about when we're going to give somebody a diagnosis. Good. I really like this distinction um, quite a bit. Um, you know, in a lot of way, your whole theory is, it's very like neurodiversity friendly, you know, yeah, it's like, you know, like that world would embrace it. I hope uh, so. It's, you know, because there's lots of different um, forms of neurodiversity, as you know, that I'm very interested in, like autism, spe- a lot of different kinds of spectrums. Right. And the the whole movement is moving towards this idea that like, not to pathologize it just because it exists. Right. And I think Absolutely. that's very, very much in line with with your theory. I think yeah. in, in further unpacking your theory, and I, I want to, I'm trying to do a bit by bit here. I want to, uh, there's another piece I want to pull out and that's the difference between, uh, uh, character, um, uh, characters, what do you call it? Characteristic adaptations yeah. and personality traits. Yeah. Can okay. You, can you define both and the difference? To sure. Yeah. And this is, this is like a throwback to our last podcast that we did together, probably where we were talking about the personality theory because that's kind of the center of that theory, too. So the idea is basically that um, I think I said earlier, even in this conversation, that traits, we think, represent uh, variation in these basic mechanisms that everyone has. Like everybody has the capacity uh, to experience being motivated by something, at least to some extent. Uh, Everybody has the capacity to experience fear, at least to some extent, although you can find people who are relatively fearless, right? Everybody is uh, averse to certain things. So there are these universal properties and there's variation in them. And that's what personality traits are fundamentally. So the way that I think about this is the test is, would this make sense to describe differences between people uh, in any culture at any time in human history? Right? Like if you go back to you know prehistoric times, I'm sure you know you have 
hunter-gatherers sitting around the fire, and some of them would want to argue with each other, and some of them would not, right? Argumentativeness is probably something that's been different between people and useful for characterizing people for all of human history. Um, and so th anything that you can use in any human context like that is a personality trait. But then we have these ways that we specifically adapt to our own life circumstances and to the specific culture that we're a part of. And those are what we call characteristic adaptations, right? So they require learning. They're characteristic of us because they're persistent over time, right? Like I'm a, I'm a professor that is, you know, part of my persistent identity and my behavior. It shapes what I do. It's a role that I have, right? Just like, you know, being a lawyer would also be a different characteristic adaptation. It's a way that somebody has adapted to make do in their particular situation. And so, um, Characteristic adaptations are the parts of personality that aren't really universal, but that represent variation between people that have to do with what we've learned and the circumstances that we're in. You know, what do you think about this density distribution model, uh, like the Fleeson sort of way of thinking about yeah, personality? No, I think that's exactly the way that I would think about personality, that when we think about what a trait is, it is... Uh, a tendency to be in a particular type of states, but it doesn't mean that you're always that way all the time, right? Like, you know, an extrovert isn't talking 100% of the time, uh, even though extroverts are more, you know, talkative in general. Uh, uh, somebody who has an anxious temperament isn't experiencing anxiety every moment of their lives. Um, but when we say somebody has the trait, we're saying that they're more likely to experience those things more often, more intensely in more situations. And so the, the density distribution, you know, that's just saying that there is an average and that's where uh, the person spends more of their time, but there's still a whole distribution, right? Like, so even the extrovert is acting introverted some of the time, but on average, they're acting more extroverted, more outgoing, more talkative than somebody who is relatively introverted, right? So, sure. but yeah, so it, it leaves room for variation within the person for their behavior, but points to the fact that people have these kinds of stable average tendencies over time. Right, so I'm glad that we uh, talked about that and hopefully didn't lose our audience. <laughs> <laughs> you, can, you can cut it if you need to. <laughs> no, 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 no. This is... <laughs> this is technical stuff. This is real technical stuff. You know, characteristic, most people aren't probably aren't familiar with the term characteristic adaptations. They're maybe more familiar with personality. So, so, but this is central to your argument. Like we really have to make sure that, that uh, people understand this, you know, you're saying that people can use characteristic adaptations to help them manage or even thrive with the kind of brain imprint, imprint, uh, imprint that the DSM could even currently classify as a mental illness. Right. So, uh, you know, what, you know what another good term for characteristic adaptations is that I've been using a lot lately? Habits. It's well, lot, that's much better. <laughs> it's a yeah. lot shorter, right? You yeah. know, and I, I've just got to say, I didn't invent the term characteristic adaptations. Okay? That's not my fault. <laughs> no, that's fair enough. That's fair enough. I'm not uh, blaming I, you. I, I, I like it because it actually is a good description of what it is. It's like we adapt to our situation in certain ways, and then those adaptations become habitual, right? And so yeah. we have habits of acting, we have habits of thinking, um, and those habits, those ways that we, you know, habitually act and think and 
things that we habitually strive for, right? Our goals, our habits in a certain gotcha. sense too, once they're concrete enough, um, you know, those are these characteristic adaptations. And yeah, people can have um, very unusual profiles uh, and they can have experiences that would be classifiable as psychiatric symptoms uh, like those uh, clairvoyants, for example, hearing voices. turns out that hearing voices is a lot more common than you might expect. Um, and, it, and it's actually I a relatively hear a voice normal. right now. Yes. <laughs> <It's>, <laughs> <laughs> no, come on. That's, that joke had to be made because <laughs> you, 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 you literally said, you know, people hearing voices is more common than you would think. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Sometimes out in their, right in their ears as if somebody's yeah. just speaking in their ears. Yeah. Um, yeah, I, I realized I took out my headphones at some point, so hopefully the sound's not uh, not. You still worse, sound good. But, uh, you, you sound good to me. Um, yeah. Anyway, yeah, so, like, let's just imagine that you were somebody who heard voices. Well, first of all, why do you do that? That's because your brain is designed to simulate the social world, right? It's designed to understand other people. Part of what you do is by imagining other people talking. So if you're the kind of person who spontaneously hears voices, that's just your brain running its simulation programs. Um, and, you know, we've been talking a lot lately in other contexts about consciousness and free will and things. And, uh, you know, a lot is going on in your brain that you don't have voluntary control over. Right. And so let's say you are somebody who spontaneously hears voices that you can't control very well. Um, how do you deal with that? Right. Well, you can get really panicked because we associate that with schizophrenia and we stigmatize it. Um, or you could have a number of different possible ways of adapting to that. You could just accept like, oh, I've got an active imagination that sometimes, you know, talks to me. And I'm going to I don't know, maybe I'm going to turn that into something that helps me write novels, for example, because it's like I have dialogues with uh, you know characters in my head um, or. Maybe the way that you adapt is that you come to believe that you are communicating with other spiritual realms, right? And you launch a business as, as a psychic. Um, and maybe that allows you to, to make a living and to get along with people. Those are all different patterns of characteristic adaptations, right? They're all different habits of thinking and acting and pursuing goals in the world. And they can be effective to allow people to, to meet their various needs, and to coordinate all their various goals together adequately to uh, to get by and even to thrive in the world, right? And so to us, merely being unusual um, is not enough to indicate that you have a problem because there's so many different ways that people can adapt. There's so many different habits that people can develop that can potentially allow them to, you know, manage their own uh, unusual qualities. Right? And to even have them be to even have them be benefits or gifts, right? That allows them to function well. Um, so don't take this the wrong way, Colin. Um, but what you your theory is revolutionary. I think it's revolutionary, but it really shouldn't be. Yeah, no, I because one hundred percent agree. Because with that. because what you're saying to me, is, I'm like, well, duh. Like, but but it's so f weird that something where I would respond, yeah, duh, is is the complete opposite from a, the structure that ha that has existed for for almost a hundred years. You know, um, uh, well, I don't know when the, when the first DSM came out, but well, well, right, well, the DSM changed radically in 1980, right? So there was DSM one and DSM two, yeah. uh, which were basically um, 
Freudian psychoanalysis manuals that had lengthy descriptions about what different kinds of mental problems looked like and how they worked that were all based on like, you know, Freudian interpreting Freudian mechanisms in the brain. Um, and then in 1980, what you had was a group of psychiatrists who got together and said, we can do this better, we can do this in a more scientific way. And they created these, you know, sets of checklists for what are the symptoms going to be for each diagnosis that did not require drawing any inferences about what was going on in people's unconscious minds. Mm -hmm. So, you know, they were trying to make a more systematic process and, a, and a, a better system for diagnosis. And, you know, and I think in many ways that they did. But the fact remained, nonetheless, that the kind, the sets of criteria they came up with in the categories and the list of symptoms were really just based on, uh, you know, the experience of people's in the, in the medical profession, psychiatrist experience. So you could think of it as like the accumulated wisdom of psychiatry. It mm -hmm. still wasn't very scientific by our standards today. And so the, you know, the new movement to move toward these dimensional systems is because now we have enough actual data that we can see uh, how different symptoms are likely to present together and to develop over time and all these things. Yeah, no, I, I love it. And I don't know if you've, you've noted, uh, if you've noticed the similarity, um, to my theory of personal intelligence, you know, in ungifted yeah. arguing that we need to move away from intelligence models, um, that are based solely on the decontextualized IQ test and look at the person's personal goals. You know? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, and you know, you and I have talked a lot about that, of course, because of course. I think we don't we don't necessarily agree on um, you know whether intelligence should be or needs to be redefined. Um, but that's only because we have you know we're just thinking about different kind of uh, perspectives. Let's say, like I'm thinking about it in terms of the scientific tradition of researching intelligence, whereas you're thinking about the way in which the concept of intelligence gets used in policy and in popular culture and is, you know, constraining on people uh, who could potentially be facilitated to, well, you know, live their best life, as you would probably say, right? Yeah, yeah. And so, you know, I absolutely see the parallels between what we're saying about mental disorder and what you're saying about how we should uh, help people to achieve well-being. Um, I guess we're probably not going to talk about this today, but as you know, I've also been developing this the cybernetic theory to be a theory of uh, of well-being too, because um, we've got you know moving to try to take in uh, mental health problems on one side, but then you know the mere fact that you don't have psychopathology doesn't mean that you have you know the the optimal amount of well-being, um, and so you know there again our theory of well-being is all about looking at what individual people value and what works for them as a set of, uh, of values and goals uh, in coordination with each other. That's work you're doing with Valerie Tiberius, right? Valerie Tiberius, yeah, who's Tiberius. a philosopher and a friend of mine, yeah. Yeah, so an idea of what is, I, yeah, go on. I just suddenly realized I never gave a, a shout out to Bob Kruger, who's, my, you know, I keep saying we when I'm talking about our theory of psychopathology, <laughs> um, but I should obviously, uh, you know, uh, recognize Bob, who is really yeah. um, brilliant uh, clinical psychologist and has been, uh, you know, so involved in this whole movement toward better classification systems for psychopathology and understanding it better. I mean, this really is revolutionary stuff. I mean, I hope the the listener uh, understands the gravity of what you're proposing, because it would really shake things up in the field of psychiatry, let alone yeah. psychology. Yeah. 
Well, so there's there's kind of like levels of uh, of radical in terms of the, of changes that are being proposed. Sure. Um, so first of all, you've got this you know, hierarchical taxonomy of psychopathology, high top, right? This new this new model that uh, people in that consortium, including me, we would like that to replace the DSM, right? So instead of those categories, uh, you get described as having levels of you know a set of different dimensions. Um, they're sort of analogous to the big five, actually. Quite a lot of them are quite analogous to the big five in personality, where you have different levels of different potential, um, you know, symptoms that could be used to characterize people who are having problems. Um, but even some of the people who are working on that vein, they still want to say, like, well, when you reach a certain level of symptoms, then we're going to give you the diagnosis. Right. Right. And so I think what's most radical about the the uh, theory that we're working on is that it even goes beyond that to say that no matter what level of these symptoms you have, it doesn't count as a mental disorder unless you have cybernetic dysfunction, right? Unless you're not able to pursue the things that you value and need in life. Um, and so, you know, one way to, to describe, I guess, just how radical this theory is, is that in some sense, there would only be one diagnosis. And that would be you have, you know, you have psychopathology, right? you, you're having some kind of a, you're having a problem in your life. And then we can go to try to figure out what's it like, right? And we can say, well, you know, you have you have these unusual characteristics, and those seem to be inter help, you know, causing you trouble in these ways. Um, and you've got these habits that are really kind of counterproductive and that are undermining you. That you know, maybe we can figure out where you pick them up. Maybe we can figure out why. Maybe we can figure out how to help you change them. Um, so yeah, in some ways. But you know, what's really interesting thing about this, Scott? Uh, my observation is that. In some ways, this is what people in the clinic typically do already. Like, you know, not the people who are writing the DSM um, or, you know, funding scientific research, but just clinical psychologists mm. who are interacting with people. Somebody comes in. What do you do? Uh, you try to you say, what's wrong? You try to understand their problems. You try to understand, like, the pattern of their lives, the specific ways they think about things the specific, you know, personality profile that they have that might be like helping or hindering them. And then, you, you know, you deal with that person as an individual. So in some ways, I don't think it's that weird. It's just so counter to the way in which everybody is obsessed with, uh, you know, uh, identifying labels for people and slotting them into the right boxes, because that's how you know what to put on the insurance form. And in theory, that's how you know what pills to give people, right? Because that's another thing we haven't even touched on yet is the a current obsession in psychiatry with treating everything with pills. Well, that's a whole different conversation, but yeah, yes. I hear you. I just, <laughs> I want to ask a follow-up question um, uh, because you've talked a lot about uh, trying to understand uh, and, and move us, move us away from thresholds of the actual uh, characteristics themselves. But I want to talk about the other end. How do you find the cutoff for cybernetic dysfunction? You know, I mean, the, you know, you won't, you haven't, we haven't focused on that question as much as. Right. So that gets us back again to this distinction that you brought up between psychopathology and mental disorder. Mm. Uh, and so what we think is that actually, again, it's an objective question or not, whether somebody is, ha has cybernetic dysfunction. Mm. Um, because remember that requires two things. First that you are, uh, you know, you're, you're blocked from moving towards, uh, you know, some of your important goals. Um, and then the second thing is that you're unable to 
engage in the process that allows you to explore new possibilities, right? Like swapping in new goals or finding new strategies to pursue the old goals or just thinking about the world in a different way that it would allow you to get past whatever you're stuck in. Um, and as soon as you've got that being blocked and then also not being able to engage in effectively in the process of developing new strategies and new goals, then you've got psychopathology. So I think that that's, I think it's reasonable to think about that as something that you do have or you don't. But of course you could have a very, you could have a pretty mild version of that, right? Where, you know, somebody um, might just, I don't know, be really depressed and stuck in a way for a couple of weeks. And maybe if you went in to the doctor at that point and said, I'm super depressed, things are going badly, I don't know what to do. Um, you know, let's say it's lasted for a month rather than two weeks. Like eventually you're going to get to the threshold where even the DSM would say, okay, now we're diagnosing you with the depression. But remember for them too, it's pretty arbitrary exactly how long that has to be. Um, and so what we're saying basically is that whether or not you have psychopathology is something that we should be able to say pretty clearly, but that doesn't mean we want to give you a diagnosis, right? Because the diagnosis has to do with whether you need treatment or not, or whether we're just going to, you know, see whether you can, uh, you know, whether you can get by on your own, or maybe we give you just a little bit of advice or counseling or whatever. I mean, it's like, it's rare that somebody goes in to see like a, a counselor or a therapist and they get nothing, right? They're not going to yeah. say, oh, what? They're going to say, well, you know, talk to me and I'll see how I can help you. But, you know, maybe just that little bit of help might be enough. Um, and so uh, figuring out how much cybernetic dysfunction somebody has to have before we're going to give them a diagnosis, that's a tricky question, right? And that's not really the business that we're in because that's something that has to be worked out with the medical establishment and you know, even sadly with things like insurance and all these things, there are all these players that come in to uh, defining exactly when somebody needs treatment. And I don't think that ultimately that can be a purely objective question, yeah. right? Because there's always judgments about when to, when you should help. This is a basic issue with medicine. It's not, it's not just a science, right? Because there's this, there's imperative, there's the imperative to treat. Well, also, I mean, if if you have the money, you you can get service from someone. It, it's not like psychologists are turning people away. They're like, you're not messed up enough to see me, you know? <laughs> right. You can, you know right. We were talking about psychoanalysis. You can go pay to lie on the couch. Uh, I mean, you know, it'll take you. For, for five years if you have yeah. enough money. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so it's we don't have to get that precise. It's just like the patient, the patient has to reach a point in their life where they're motivated to change in some way or yeah to. um i mean one interesting question is what do you do with people who have a problem but aren't motivated to change and they're and they're destroying society and or become like uh president <laughs> right right well so there's an interesting thing about narcissism and antisocial personality disorder uh which is that those people who have those problems often don't think they have a problem i know uh and so you know one question we always get with our theory is like, well, how do you say when those people have a problem? Because what if they are pursuing their goals effectively? And what we usually say is that, well, most of the time they're not, even if they think they are, right? Mm -hmm. Like if you are constantly stressed out and constantly in a rage because people aren't giving you the admiration that you feel you deserve, then you are not actually successfully pursuing your goals, right? <laughs> yeah. uh, so, you know, 
you can still you can potentially diagnose people who don't want to be diagnosed even using our theory that's funny uh, you, you say you say to a narcissist you have some serious cybernetic dysfunction going on there <laughs> yeah well and they'll say you know screw you right mm-hmm. <laughs> i'm the greatest i'm the greatest but, at cybernetic dysfunction well, right. Well, I wouldn't say that, but um, I'm joking. But right. But the th- that's, you know, again, when we say that it's an objective question, like they have a set of goals and whether or not they're actually effectively pursuing them mm-hmm. is an objective question, whether or not they recognize it, whether or not, you know, they're deluded about how their lives are going or not. Um, so, you know, I think that's a really interesting point. Another interesting one is what do you do with the what, what people have called a successful psychopath? You know, like the person who is uh, not in jail, uh, but making people making people miserable, making people suffer to get what they want. Um, You know, is that person, you know, they're very callous. They have no consideration of other people's uh, other people's feelings or other people's needs. Happy to hurt people to get what they want. Is that person mentally ill or not? Um, And there our take on it is basically that uh, if the way that they treat other people is interfering with some of their goals or needs, again, regardless of whether they recognize it or not, uh, then we can say that, yes, they do have psychopathology, they do have cybernetic dysfunction. But in the very rare case where they are actually meeting all of their own you know, values and needs while causing other people to suffer, they're not mentally ill, but that's a question for you know, for the law, probably like mm. we, we need to use other societal mechanisms. And we often do that, of course, right? Because we often say, well, you're not mentally ill, but I'm sending you to jail because right? you did things that are causing other people to suffer. So totally. Yeah. Diagnosing mental illness is not the only way to deal with people who cause suffering. Harm. Yeah. And, and their own personal goals might be being met at the expense of society. And I think your theory needs to take that into account as well. Yeah. Well, I'm, you know, and, and the way that it does that is to say that some things are a matter for, uh, for, for the law, right? For legal enforcement or societal enforcement in some other way, and not for uh, the mental health profession. Um, yeah. You know, unless, which is not unless they're at risk, you can still report. There's still certain rules. Yeah. Yeah, you read my mind. I was just going to yeah. think about risk, right? Because yeah. you know, like. Our theory, I think, also lends itself to thinking about ways to intervene for people who have risky personality profiles without you know, stigmatizing them by saying they have a mental disorder, but saying, like, with that particular profile that you have, uh, you are at serious risk for things going badly down the road, mm-hmm. um, right? And so maybe we want to intervene in certain ways, like, you know... Uh, Young, like if you have kids, for example, who show what are called callous and unemotional traits, uh, which are uh, essentially the antecedents uh, to um, to psychopathy, right? To having this kind of total callous uh, disregard for other people and uh, you know fearlessness and meanness and disinhibition. Uh, if you see kids who have those traits, uh, you might want to figure out if there's something that you can do to steer them in a way that will not lead to um, to something that might later be called psychopathy, right? But there's also a cause that psychologists have that if you're a, a risk of uh, hurting like children or uh, killing yourself, you yeah. know, I w- I'm also thinking about those, which, which your theory is not going to change that, some of the basic fundamental principles there. 
no, of no, ethics. it generally wouldn't, right? Because I mean, you know, people who are at risk of hurting themselves generally, you know, want generally want to live. Like, I, yeah, I mean, it's it becomes tricky when you get into questions like around suicide, right? Because um, I, you know, I, I mean, I guess one of the things that our theory would uh, would say was possible was that there you could that you could make a case for uh, a, a justified uh, allowing of, uh, of 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 people ending their own lives, right? Like with terminal illness, some countries already have this. I think that it, it, if it, when it's done right, it is it is very enlightened. Right? If you're saying I'm going to I'm going to be suffering, I'm going to be you know dead in five years from this terminal illness. Uh, I want to end my own life. Uh, I don't think that you should be considered to have a mental illness, right? I think that there are wow. there, there are circumstances under which that might be uh, reasonable and yeah. Uh, and, yeah. and not a sign of um, bad mental health. Well, uh, but I, 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 most, I in most circumstances when people are suicidal, it's a symptom of a lot of things going wrong for them, and they're and that they're not able to you know, get what they want or need in life. And so, you know, then it clearly is indicative of psychopathology from our perspective. I hear you. I, I, I should have not even brought the suicide one because that that's the one you double clicked on, but I'm thinking harm to others, you know, criteria like pedophiles who might, you know, are at risk of acting on it, you know, their urges or other things like that. Yeah. Yeah. Um, right. And so I think that's a clear case where somebody um, is, putting themselves at risk, you know, so pretty much nobody wants to go to jail, right? If you're going to jail, like that's probably going to thwart a lot of your, uh, your goals, the things you value, what, what you want in life. And, you know, so sometimes let's say somebody makes a mistake, does something illegal, uh, goes to jail. Um, they might be able, they can avoid mental illness potentially by temporarily adjusting their goals, trying to adapt to their situation, uh, you know, when they get out of jail, they might go back to pursuing some of the former values. Hopefully, they've also maybe changed some of their goals to avoid getting in that kind of trouble again. You know, so we can think about that process of adaptation. But when you've got somebody who is at risk of destroying their own lives, not to mention the lives of others, like somebody with pedophilic tendencies, for example, then certainly there could be good reason to intervene, right? Um and so, you know, that's a situation where you've got both the mental health issues coming up with somebody whose characteristics are putting them at risk, and you've got legal issues where their characteristics are putting other people at risk. Yeah, that's right. That's exactly right. Well, something I really like about your theory, though, is that it, it even just recognizes uh, fundamentally that different people have different goals. I mean, even that's a revolutionary reframe. <laughs> yeah. Um, um, yeah. Yeah, so, I mean, and I guess we try to strike a balance between the fact that there are some goals that are pretty universal to human beings, uh, right? This is like the whole idea of basic needs, right? I don't need to tell you about basic needs. I know I? something about that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, but yeah, so we reckon, but then even there, like we put more emphasis on the possibility for those to vary than some theorists would. Uh, Right. Like, for example, you know, the need for uh, relatedness or connection or belonging or whatever you want to call it. Um, you know, maybe there's somebody uh, who's a hermit who's been living in the woods for 20 years. Do you ever read that story about it's like the last hermit, this guy who lived in Maine in the woods 
No, for last term, no. That's, a, no. that's a really fascinating story. I'll send it to you. Um, but, uh, you know, so there are real people like this who are happier without human contact and who seem to have, you know, minuscule amounts of what is supposedly this universal human need for affiliation. And to us, you know, that doesn't mean that they are defective or mentally ill or disordered or whatever, because it might be that they just have a really unusual personality profile. And if they can figure out a way to live that satisfies their other goals, um, you know, then they can be healthy, uh, more power to them. Um, but most people obviously have more of a need for affiliation than that. And so it is important. Like if I was thinking about this clinically, I would say, well, you want to check in on the things that people have, uh, you know, most people have a, uh, have a need for, like connection to other people and sense of autonomy and sense of, you know, competence or capability or, you know, esteem or, you know, could use anything on, on Maslow's list or your updated version of Maslow's list. Well, yeah. I mean, if you do ever write more on a specific, uh, you know, elaboration of the interventions um, that uh, are implied by your theory, um, I would like to please consult me because I think we can sure. we can we can bring in a lot of uh, humanistic psychology and and the kind of things I've been thinking about in terms of how uh, the goal of self actualization and, and actually not forgetting that transcendence is a need in, among many humans as well, you know. Um, right. So yeah, absolutely. Um, so yeah, we should keep talking. I guess is what I, all I'm saying uh, there. Um, yeah, so let's just end with um, just a couple more um, of the implications for intervention. You know, um, I can even read quotes from you. You say, because our theory defines, <laughs> no, because you say it so well here, because our theory defines psychopathology in terms of failure of characteristic adaptations, behavioral and talk therapies um, most direct, act, direct, ask, act most directly on the problem. And biological interventions are effective only in as much as the changes they make to cybernetic mechanisms subsequently allow people to develop and maintain effective characteristic adaptations. Uh, Oof, that's But once we unpack what that means, I think that's a really good suggestion for clinical psychologists who want to apply your theory. Yeah. Um, right. So one of the things that we are is uh, skeptical about the amount that pharmaceuticals are used to try to help people with mental health problems. Um, and, you know, to be clear, we think that there's always going to be a place for uh, pharmaceuticals for some types of problem, um, you know, controlling uh, mania, for example. Uh, you know, uh, people use lithium to do that with a fair amount of success for many people. Um, you know, those, there are things where there, the system, some of these basic mechanisms of the system may be so extreme that if you don't intervene directly on them, uh, with drugs, it may be really hard for the person to maintain stability and to be able to pursue their goals effectively in life. Um, but for many problems, I think we should be paying more attention to what we can do with, uh, behavioral interventions, talk based interventions, you know, things like, uh, CBT, DBT, ACT, <laughs> all the all the acronym or abbreviations. CBD oil. CBD. Well, that's a drug intervention, my friend. <laughs> I'm joking. Uh, I'm joking. Which, you know, which again, I have, I have not. I have no opposition to CBD oil or THC, any other drug. But I think that um, when we are talking about what people need, we often intervene with drugs that. 
Um, well, it's sort of like driving a nail with a sledgehammer, right? We, we use these drugs that have extremely uh, dramatic consequences on brain function. Um, they're not targeted. They're generally developed through trial and error. Um, they work for some people, but not for many people. The success rates on them are, you know, only marginally better than placebos for a lot of commonly prescribed drugs. So uh, I think that if we focused more on figuring out how to basically uh, help people to reshape their own uh, habits, fundamentally, right? Their, the ways that they think about the world, the ways that they act, the strategies that they use, um, to manage some of their own uh, idiosyncrasies and unusual qualities without pathologizing them, without stigmatizing them. Um, you know, I, I just think that, I think we could be doing a lot better job of uh, helping people. Um, and I think we could be, you know, it's funny I say this because a lot of my own research is neuroscience oriented, right? I'm very interested in the brain systems that are involved in uh, different personality traits and risks for different kinds of uh, mental illness. But at the same time, I think that we should actually be spending a lot more money um, in research on interventions that are not based on uh, on drugs and on uh, biological mechanisms. Because I think that um, th there's this sort of general belief that the biological mechanisms are what's are, are the real problem, right? There's right. a brain disease. But I don't think that's right at all. I think that the, the brain, whatever the patterns of brain function, they're just creating risks for people. And that the real disease, if you will, is that uh, people can't figure out what are the right things to be pursuing in life and the right ways to pursue them and the right ways to understand their existence. That was beautiful. Um, yeah, <laughs> you know, this makes a lot of sense what you're saying because the things, at the, the particular methods that psychologists can use for helping people to change those goals and interpretations of the world and, and to learn the strategies to be resilient and to reach those goals are more efficiently changed by behavioral or talk therapies than by biological interventions. Right. Yeah. So that really explains it. I want to end our chat today with a quote of yours. You say, ultimately, psychopathology can be overcome only by helping people to set aside characteristic maladaptations that prevent them from, from pursuing their goals effectively and to adopt new adaptations that become persistent elements of their personalities or habits, as you said, <laughs> right? Or, or, or new habits. Um, Get rid of your bad you can sum this up as like, you know, figure out how to get rid of your bad habits and develop yes. better habits. Correct. That's <laughs> what we would say in layman, lay, lay person yeah. uh, language. But but the, but I want to end with this note because I think that it's a really exciting new area that you're going into with your work. Um, you know, you've done such great work on understanding the neuroscience of personality, understanding biological substrates of behavior, cognition and personality. But to move more in this direction of trying to actually um, impact the day-to-day um, -day work that psychologists, you know, practitioners and psychiatrists are doing informed by real psychological theory, I think is quite revolutionary. So I just want to thank you, Colin, for coming on my podcast today and for unpacking all the complexities, because it is a very complex theory, for our, uh, um, unpack them with our audience. Yeah, well, I hope, um, I hope the unpacking was uh, comprehensible. Um, I assume you'll put up some links. You can probably link to some of the the papers I will. Uh, if people want to read more. Um, yeah, no, it's been, it's been fun and uh, it's fun to talk about these things Thanks, with Colin. you, especially. <laughs> For sure. Thanks, Colin. 
Thanks for listening to this episode of the Psychology Podcast. If you'd like to react in some way to something you heard, I encourage you to join in the discussion at thepsychologypodcast.com. That's thepsychologypodcast.com. Also, if you'd prefer a completely ad-free experience, you can join us at patreon.com slash psychpodcast. Thanks for being such a great supporter of the show and tune in next time for more on the mind, brain, behavior, and creativity. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. It's a simple truth. No matter who you are, mental health challenges can affect you and how you manage them can make all the difference. That's why everyone should have access to mental health support that meets them where they are and helps them get through. BetterHelp provides online therapy on your schedule. It's flexible, simple to use, and more affordable than in-person therapy. Connect with a licensed therapist selected just for you. Learn more at BetterHelp.com. That's BetterHelp.com. Hey, girlfriends. It's me, Carol Fisher, back with another season of the global number one podcast, The Girlfriends. Last time, we investigated the murder of Gail Katz. This time, we're uncovering the identity of the woman who was buried in Gail's grave for a decade before she disappeared. Join me and the rest of the club as we tell her story. Listen to season two of The Girlfriends, Our Lost Sister on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. The Black Effect presents Family Therapy, and I'm your host, Elliot Connie. Jay is the woman in this dynamic who is currently co-parenting two young boys with her former partner, David. David, he is a leader. He just don't want to leave me. But how do you lead a woman? How do you lead in a relationship? Like, what's the blueprint? David, you just asked the most important question. Listen to Family Therapy on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.